Hi, I'm Guy Powell, and welcome to the next episode of The Backstory on the Shroud of Turin. If you haven't already done so, please visit guypowell.com and sign up for more episodes. I am the author of the just-released new book, The Only Witness. It's a historical fiction tracing a possible history of the Shroud over the last two millennia. Today, we'll be speaking with Sebastian Cataldo. He's a syndenologist and shroud researcher and author. So let me tell you a little bit about Sebastian. Sebastian pursued two years of graduate study in the production of textiles and weaving. And since 2005, he has dedicated himself to the study of the most closely studied cloth in the world. And of course, that's the Shroud of Turin. After many years of creating syntheses of scientific, historic, and medical research, Sebastian Cataldo co-wrote two books whose seriousness, objectivity, and search for the truth, whatever it may be, have been critically acclaimed in the media and recognized in the world of the Shroud. He also is the creator of the site www.lancel-turin.com, and I'll spell that, that's wwwlinceul turin.com, which is rapidly becoming the reference point for information on the Shroud of Turin in the French-speaking world. He's also a lecturer, and he participated in and co-presented conferences in France, Monaco, the United States, and in Lebanon. He also wrote a novel based on the actual scientific discoveries. This thrilling thriller plunges you into the mysterious world of Jesus's shroud. Sebastian is a prolific writer. He has a handful of books. Uh, here are a couple of them. The Shroud of Turin, the latest discoveries that could change everything. The history of the shroud and its comparison with the image of Edessa. And the shroud, semicolon or colon, the apocalypse. He's made a number of videos and movies on the Shroud, and he will be in a movie shown in the US and in Canada. Welcome, Sebastian, and thank you for being here. Thank you. Thank you very Absolutely. much. Absolutely. It's so good to have you. And uh, so tell us your backstory on how you got involved in the Shroud of Turin. So, it's at the beginning of the 2000s, like many people, I thought that the Turin Shroud was a fake from the Middle Ages because of the carbon-14 dating. But I found this linen rather interesting, and I discovered a French television show on the Shroud that plunged me a little bit into it. So I started reading books again, articles, etc. One day, my wife proposed to me that I do a small conference on what I had read about the Shroud in our parish. I started to gather a lot of information, but what was really a problem for me was the date of the carbon-14. By chance, I met a friend who had studied the Shroud for longer than me and who made me discover Raymond Rogers' works. And at the same time, I was discovering his works on French television, so a large French television channel, pseudoscientists said that they could reproduce the Shroud of Turin in less than five minutes and that it was a painting. I was rather shocked because I had Raymond Rogers' works before my eyes. So that's when I decided to do something. I decided to create an internet site, write books, scientific and historical summaries, and hold conferences to explain what the Shroud was. My goal was not to prove that it was the real Christ Shroud, but above all to say what it was and what it wasn't. That's what I've been doing since 2005. 
So let's move on to some interesting questions. Yeah, thank you uh, for that. So um, let's get right into some interesting questions as well. So what is Edessa and why is it so important to the Shroud and to Christianity? So currently Edessa is a city called Urfa, which is in present day Turkey. So at the time, the city of Edessa at the beginning of Christianity was a city which was very influential since it possessed several relics which belonged to Christ and one of the relics of which was an image which may have been painted miraculously by Christ himself. So this fabric had, according to legend, protective powers over the city. That's why this city and its relics were highly coveted by emperors, especially the Roman emperors in Constantinople. But what must be understood above all is that this image made it possible to affirm the incarnation of Christ in the face of the other religious currents, which were alive at the time in Edessa. This image made it possible to affirm the dogma of the incarnation of Christ, since one could see Christ on this image. So it had a great influence for the city and for the church of Edessa in relation to the different religious currents that existed at that time. This image had a double power, a dogmatic power, therefore religious as a relic, and then a military power because it had a so-called protection against the invaders who wanted to attack the city of Edessa. It is quite important concerning this image of Edessa, why? For the Shroud of Turin, because Ian Wilson proposes the following hypothesis. It is that he says that this image, according to the legend, would go back to the time of Abgar V, who would be the king of Edessa at the time of Christ, and that it would be Christ who would have given this image to King Abgar, and then this image would have passed to Constantinople a little later, and then they would have unfolded this linen, and they would have discovered, in fact, that it was a much larger linen, that there was not only the face of Christ, but that it was a much larger cloth, and we therefore saw the body of Christ in its entirety. And according to Ian Wilson, it would be the Shroud of Turin that would have unfolded at that time and which would be kept until now. And so, that would make it possible to affirm, according to the legend of Abgar, that the Shroud of Turin is authentic and therefore dates from Acts of the time of Christ. Yeah, thank you. And um, so, with Abgar 5, there are hypotheses that Jesus himself wrote a letter to King Abgar V. According to the legend of King Abgar, it begins with an exchange of letters between Christ and this king. King Abgar asks Jesus to come and meet him to heal him of an illness. Jesus answers him with a letter. We don't know if it was written by Christ or if he dictated it to a scribe, but in this letter Jesus answers Abgar by saying that he can't come, but that he will send one of his apostles to heal Abgar and to evangelize the town. So then we know that this letter from Christ to Abgar is brought to Constantinople by the Roman Emperor in 1032. The problem is that it disappears in 1185 during a plunder of the imperial palace. So the problem with this letter is that it poses a problem at the level of the constitution of the New Testament. Indeed, because it should have been part of the New Testament, because it would be the only letter written by Christ himself. However, at the end of the 5th century, Pope Galatius I judged this letter as apocryphal, and therefore not in line with the official doctrine of the Church, because it does not have a credible historical basis. But above all, what is important when we read the letter is that it is very, very largely inspired by canonical Gospels. This means that it was made after the canonical Gospels because we notice that there are references in the construction of the letter to words that are held in the Gospels. 
such as the fact of believing without seeing, the resurrection of the flesh, and the ascension to the sky of Jesus. So in fact, this letter for me, it was invented once again. It allowed the affirmation of the dogmas of the Church of Edessa against the other Christian currents of that time. And so, it allowed, above all, to affirm that the city of Edessa was evangelized by one of the apostles of Christ. So, it allowed the city, and especially its church, to be an important city within Christianity. Mm, yes, thank you. Um, so, there's a... Um, uh, so, what is the difference, then, between the Shroud of Turin, the Mandelian, and the image of Edessa? In fact, we see that these objects that are at least fabrics and images that are completely different. Why? I speak physically. If we put aside the historical aspect and the different hypotheses, we know that the image of Edessa and later the Mandelian, because we speak of the Mandelian once the image arrives in Constantinople in 944, Mandelian comes from the Syriac word Mindil, which means tower. So it's very important. We are dealing with a small-scale fabric. So the image of Edessa and the Mendelian are the same image. What is interesting to know is that at the beginning of the legend of Abgar in the 5th century, this image only appears in the 5th century in the legend of Abgar. This image is painted. It is well written in the texts. It is Abgar who sends one of his trusted people to see Jesus. When he sees Jesus, this person paints the portrait of Christ. So at the beginning, the image of Edessa is a painted image, and especially in color. Only the face of Christ, with Christ alive and his eyes open. Then, when the Mendelian, the image of Edessa, then known as the Mendelian, arrives in Constantinople, perhaps a little earlier, you have to know that in the 6th century, only the image of Edessa becomes miraculous. It goes from a painted image made by a man to an image made by Christ himself. At the time, it was said that it would be Christ who would have wiped his face with a towel and his face would have remained miraculously on this towel. And we see over the centuries and the evolution of the legend of Abgar, it becomes monochromatic, made with only one color, and at the end of the legend of Abgar, which evolves over the whole time, the legend would have created this image. So, in fact, we see that this image evolves over the centuries, and above all, each time to affirm a dogma of the church. That is, at the beginning, it is to affirm the dogma of the Incarnation, since we could paint the Christ, we could say that he was incarnate, that he was a real man, then, by becoming miraculous, this image becomes made by Christ himself. So it confirms the dogma of the two natures of Christ, human and divine. So we have the image of the Mandelian as a small-sized fabric, made either by a man or by Christ himself, while we see that the Turin Shroud is a very large fabric, some four meters long, we see the dead, naked, bloody Christ. So we are dealing with objects that are completely different. Yeah, thank you. So, uh, so there is a hypothesis that these are all one and the same, and uh, there is a hypothesis that they are all different. So what is your hypothesis, and uh, can you elaborate on that? Unlike Ian Wilson's hypotheses, I propose that the Shroud of Turin has always been considered a mortuary shroud, that is, the shroud in which the body of Christ would have been wrapped, so that excludes the image of Edessa. So, in my opinion, the Shroud of Turin would have inspired what is called the tradition of Epitaphios, 
They are embroidered or painted fabrics that are traditionally placed in Orthodox churches on the altars from Saturday to Sunday before the Ascension. There is a very great similarity between these epitaphios, these large fabrics where we see the body of Christ, and the Turin Shroud. This allows me to make a link between this shroud and the origin of the epitaphios. It is quite difficult to make the history of the epitaphios go back to the 13th century, but there are some very interesting documents. I will give you one. For example, we know that in the 7th century in Jerusalem, a shroud of Christ was venerated. It was a fabric that was more than 2.2 meters long. And in this story, we see another piece of cloth in which we see the 12 apostles embroidered, and in the center we see an image of Christ himself. So we know that from the 7th century, an image of Christ is venerated, and we have another fabric that allows us to see a representation of the body of Jesus as a whole. Then, you should know that during the, let's say from the 9th century, we had a tradition that allowed us to make a transition between the veneration of a cloth and a cloth that would allow it to be placed on an altar and to celebrate the Mass on it, and this fabric be linen in the traditional way. Then, we know that in 944, the image of Edessa arrives in Constantinople, and Gregory the Referendario explains in his speech, at the time of the reception of the image, that the Mandilion was made by the drops of sweat of Christ's agony. But according to some translations, another image was produced by the drops of blood. So here we have, perhaps, on one side the Mandilion, and on the other side another image made by the blood of Christ, with the blood of Christ. So they are two totally different relics. Another testimony, in the 10th century, we know that in Constantinople, the emperors had to kiss the image of the Holy Napa. That is, the Holy Napa was a fabric that was on the altar of the Hagia Sophia, and the emperors had to kiss it at the time of the Mass. So it was a fabric that was very particular, and so this fabric bore a certain image. We don't know what this image is. We can assume that, as it was on the altar, as the altar represented the sacrifice of Christ, we can assume that it was the body of Christ that was on this holy table. And finally, there is the Prey Codex, which dates from the 13th century, where we see many similarities between the drawing of the Prey Codex and the Apostaphios. In particular, we can see the red crosses that are on the Prey Codex, which are very often found on the Epitaphios. We can think of a lining that would perhaps hide a part of the image. We also have the weft of the Shroud of Turin, which is also found on the Prey Codex, and which is also found in many epitaphios. We have the angel who designates the empty tomb to the arriving holy women, and this angel is very often found in the epitaphios. Finally, we also have traces under the left foot of the angel. We have traces of blood that indicate that there was a bloodied body on it, and so this body is also found on the epitaphios. So we see with this hypothesis that the Turin Shroud may be at the origin of the epitaphios, and that a linen was worshipped in Jerusalem from the 7th century. So it's true that it doesn't allow us to bring back the Turin Shroud to the time of Christ, but that's not my goal. My goal is really to look for the Turin Shroud in history from our time, as far as possible, but always as a mortal image, really as one of Christ, and not through another image. So, do you think that the Mandelian and the image of Edessa have been lost forever? Have they been destroyed? Yes, yes, because here we have a trace. We have documents that are considered and that are quite explicit. We know that the image of Edessa was transferred to Constantinople in 944, 
and that it was preserved at the Pharos Chapel. And we know that in 1204, the Latin Crusaders arrived in Constantinople and pillaged the city. Except at that time, one of the Crusaders, Boniface de Montferrat, arrives directly in the area of the palace, occupies the area of the palace and protects this area, thus avoiding looting. And so we know that the Mandilion was in this area at that time, so it was preserved and it was not stolen by the Latin Crusaders. This allowed this area being protected to preserve a certain number of relics, including in 1207, we know that the guardian of the relics of the Pharaoh's chapel enumerated the different relics that are there, including the crown of thorns and the Mandilion. So we know that in 1207, the Mandilion is still at the chapel of the lighthouse. It was not stolen in 1204, and then in France, because in 1247, the Latin Emperor Baudouin II sold a large part of the relics that are in Constantinople. And in this list of relics, we find again the Mandilion, and so the Mandilion passes from Constantinople to France. So Saint Louis brings the Mandilion back to the Saint-Chapelle. The problem is that in 1789, the French Revolution, the Saint-Chapelle is pillaged and the Mandilion is destroyed. So the texts allow us to say that definitely the image of Edessa and therefore the Mandilion are destroyed forever. Pille la, la Sainte-Chapelle et le Mandillon est détruit. Donc, les textes nous permettent de dire que définitivement, l'image d'Edès et donc le Mandillon sont détruits, euh, sont détruits pour toujours. Hmm. Yeah, very interesting. Thank you. So, uh, what do you believe will be the next big thing with the shroud and the image of Edessa? With the shroud and the image of Edessa? However, this document does not exist. So if we find it, it would be irrefutable proof, I was going to say, or a drawing that allows us to do it. So for the moment, I don't see any document. I don't see any link between the Edessa image and the Turin Shroud. Especially since we know that the image of Edessa has followed a legend that has evolved over the centuries. And at each time they followed the dogmas of the Edessa Church, which were promulgated and allowed to be confirmed each time. We move on to a painted image, and this painted image, I remind you, only appears in the 5th century in the legend of Abgar. At the beginning, we were only talking about a letter between Christ and Abgar, and then the image, as we saw in the previous question, disappeared during the French Revolution. So for me, it's quite dangerous to want to absolutely equate the Turin Shroud with the image of Edessa, because we find ourselves stuck with documents that don't say the same thing. And finally, for me, I start from the principle that we must be aware that the Turin Shroud is a mortal linen and that it has always been considered as a mortal linen or at least like a cloth, making the totality of the body of Christ appear. So what matters to me is the historical truth and not the fact of telling the text what I want to believe or what I want to see. Yeah, very interesting. I'm actually studying right now the uh, the image of Edessa and the Mandelian and the Shroud of Turin. So uh, it all seems to come together and very uh, interested in understanding more about it. And uh, I will definitely see if I can find one of your books there. But uh, uh, Sebastian, thank you so much for today. It's uh, very interesting. And, and I'm sure that there's a million other questions that I could ask. And uh, but um, it, uh, I think people can reach you at, um, I'm going to pronounce it in French, but which is terrible, but I will uh, <laughs> spell it out in English, <laughs> but uh, www 
lancel-turin.com. So uh, www.lincul-turin.com. And I think as, uh, as I mentioned in your bio, that is definitely the source for everything related to the shroud in the French language. And so it's definitely got a, a lot of good stuff. I was looking out there just to see what was there and it's a wonderful site. So you've done a, a, a fantastic job. So uh, with that, thank you so much. Uh, I really appreciate much. it, Sebastian. Thank That's, you. Uh, thank yep, you so, yep. So uh, please stay tuned for many other videos in this series of the backstory on the Shroud of Turin. Please visit GuyPowell.com and sign up for more episodes. And if you like this episode, please rate it with five stars. Sebastian, again, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you very much.